Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day. I, uh, I was um, about to just relive some of my childhood there for a moment, as Ryan um, said, that uh, we, we should be grateful for our moms because they brought us into this world. And my mom would always say, and I can take you out of it. Anybody else's mom? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm reliving much of that right now. <laughs> Those typically weren't good moments, right? At least for us. And uh, so we are, I'm incredibly grateful um, for our moms today. Uh, without a doubt, uh, your role um, has been one and will continue to be one um, that impacts um, our world and our lives um, for generations um, to come. Uh, we also um, just want um, to acknowledge this morning that uh, some of us um, today, uh, we might be without um, our moms or um, today brings um, some difficult um, thoughts as we wrestle with things. Uh, I just want you to know today that uh, you are seen and thought of. Um, as we celebrate our moms today. So uh, several months ago, as we began to plan for um, Paul's sabbatical, where he's been taking eight weeks, I think he's in week almost four, four, so he's halfway there. Um, so we pray that he's doing well, but as uh, we began to prepare, one of the things that we looked at was kind of the sermon schedule as we were preparing uh, this year to go through the Gospel of John. And as I looked uh, to the weeks that I had been assigned, um, I realized that uh, I drew Mother's Day. I was like, awesome. Preaching during Mother's Day is always good. And then I realized a couple of things. Um, one, uh, today's passage is about the woman caught in adultery. <clears throat> Happy Mother's Day to you. <laughs> And thanks, Paul, uh, for that. And uh, also uh, realize that uh, today's passage is one that uh, we, we kind of find ourselves in a rare opportunity to look at um, Scripture, um, its origins, um, as well as what it means. And one of the things that um, we're going to find today as we look at um, John um, 7, 53 through 8, 11, is that uh, most um, New Testament scholars um, don't think that it was originally part of the Gospel of John. So if you look in uh, your Bible, depending on what version uh, you might have, it might be listed there as a, a footnote. Um, it might be listed um, in brackets. It's possible that it's not even there at all. So we'll be looking at, again, John um, 7, uh, verse 53, or um, chapter 8, verse 1, it will be going through um, verse 11. So as we look at um, this passage, I wanted to um, look back and understanding a little bit of how it got there, uh, what we can do uh, with the fact that uh, most um, New Testament scholars um, don't think that it was original to the Gospel of John, but in fact that it was added um, centuries later. For example, some of the experts, um, like Don Carson, he says, um, well, he teaches at Trinity, he's a New Testament scholar, um, he says, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text. And you'll see that um, in the NIV, you see it as a relegated as a footnote in the RSV and uh, listed there in different ways. Uh, Bruce Metzger, also uh, one of the world's uh, greatest authorities on the text of the New Testament. Um, he says this, the evidence for the non-Johannian origin of the periscope of the adulteress is overwhelming. Leon Morris, another New Testament scholar, says the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. 
Herman Ritterboss says, the evidences point to an unstable or oral tradition that was not originally part of an ecclesiastically accepted text. So here uh, we are this morning, and um, as I've, I've also been researching this, um, I, I think they're right, that this was not originally part of John's gospel. But this does give us the chance um, to dig a little deeper, to go a little further, um, spend a little time um, branching out to look at um, how was the Scripture written, um, look at things like textual criticism and the authority of the Scriptures. So what I'd like to do this morning before we actually dive into the text is just summarize some of the reasons that scholars give for the thinking um, that um, this is not part of John's original gospel. So... The evidence goes something like this. So the story of the woman caught in adultery, um, it's missing from all of the Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of John before the 5th century. So for hundreds of years, this passage actually wasn't a part of the original scriptures. It's not in those manuscripts um, before the 5th century. Also, um, all of the earliest church fathers omit this passage when they comment on John and they pass directly from John chapter 7, verse 52, straight to John 8, verse 12. In fact, if you look at the text, as we mentioned last week, um, John chapter 7 um, and John chapter 8, it's a, there's a dialogue that's happening with Jesus at the Feast of Booths. And you can see that it's, it's very continual as it goes from verse 52 in chapter 7 to chapter 8, verse 12 those first 11 verses of chapter 8, they seem oddly out of place. Um, you'll note that as you read through it. We also know that no Eastern church father cites the passage before the 10th century uh, when dealing with the gospel, and when the story starts um, to appear in manuscript copies of the Gospel of John, um, it shows up in three different places other than here um, in John chapter 8. Sometimes you'll see it um, after John chapter 7, verse 36, sometimes after verse 44, sometimes you'll see it in John 21, after verse 25, and one manuscript actually um, includes it um, in Luke um, after um, chapter 21, verse 38. Um, it's clearly a break um, in thought of what's happening in John chapter 7. We also can note that its style and vocabulary is more like the rest of the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and not like any of the words or phrases that John uses in the whole rest of his gospel. So now, saying all of that um, assumes um, a lot of the facts that most of us um, simply don't have at our fingertips, um, and nobody um, expects you to. However, um, this technical field is a, is a big deal um, to understand um, a scholarly way the upper levels of this textual criticism. Um, so let me give you enough of these reasons uh, that you can make sense of that. The New Testament um, that we know was originally written in Greek, right? The first printed Greek New Testament that came off the printing press uh, was published um, in 1516. Um, that turned the world upside down. That now uh, these um, scriptures uh, were available and becoming available to the masses. So if you want to get a, a glimpse of that, I would encourage you to read a, a biography of um, William Tyndale. So that means for about 1,500 years, the manuscripts of these biblical books uh, were passed down through us through handwritten copies. This is how we have access to the actual words that the New Testament writers wrote uh, with their very hands. 
Um, none of those um, first original manuscripts is known to exist, though, which is probably just as well, um, since if we had those original manuscripts, well, what would we do with them? We would probably put them in glass. We would probably charge people to come and visit them and to pay to see them, and we would probably worship them. So we don't have the actual original text that the authors wrote, um, but we do have uh, many um, copies of them. So these New Testament uh, writings, um, these manuscripts, they were preserved to us by faithful, um, hardworking copyists or scribes. Some of them uh, were in a script called the Unicles, which is referring um, to manuscripts with all capital Greek letters. Others in a script called the Minuscule, referring to manuscripts uh, with small Greek letters and a small number called papyri um, because um, they were made or written on papyrus, which was prevalent uh, in the days of Greek culture in those days. There's another a last group of manuscripts that we find uh, in these uh, lectionaries, uh, which were collections of texts uh, for public reading. So what is um, simply staggering um, about um, some of the things um, to understand of why we have what we have is so amazing. That the abundance of these manuscripts of the New Testament, um, or parts of the New Testament, as compared to a number of the manuscripts, compared to other um, contemporary writings of the day. For instance, there are ten existing manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Ten. They were composed between 58 and 50 BC, and all of these um, date from the 10th century or later. There's 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman history, uh, written roughly during the time when Jesus was alive. Only two manuscripts um, exist for Tacitus' histories in the annals, uh, which were composed around AD 100, one from the 9th, one from the 11th century. And uh, there are only eight manuscripts of the history of Thucydides, who lived in 460 to 400 BC. So as we compare other um, texts that were written um, about this time or during this time, uh, we can see that there are very, very few um, existing um, texts um, to compare with. So if we compare these numbers of manuscripts or partial manuscripts with the New Testament, these numbers um, from the Institute of Textual Research in Germany. Uh, by the way, they're one of the most authoritative uh, research institutes on um, the collection of data in regards to the scriptures. There are 322 uh, uncial texts, 2,907 minuscule texts, 2,445 lectionary portions, and 127 papyri for a total of 5,801 manuscripts. Are you getting all the numbers yet? <laughs> Very few of everything else written, many, many of the New Testament. And these are preserved um, in libraries all over the world, um, and now uh, we have them captured electronically, um, which is um, incredibly wonderful. So when we compare it, we can find that no other ancient book comes anywhere close when we consider the textual criticism um, or um, has uh, the wealth of diverse preservation as the scriptures do. So what does this uh, wealth do? Well, it creates uh, some problems and some solutions at the same time, if we're honest, because we must be honest as we um, look at this text critically. The copies that we have of the scriptures, they don't all agree on the wording that's in the original manuscripts. That sounds like a problem. So the more manuscripts you have, the more variations you have. On the other hand, the more manuscripts you have, the more control you have over which uh, readings 
and the original ones, or which, I'm sorry, which readings are the original ones. You can compare them and contrast them and understand where the mistakes might have been made the more copies that you have. So the more um, variations you find, um, yet um, the more they tend to be self-correcting. They help you understand it. For example, if you had only two manuscripts of the Gospel of John, and one of them has the story of the woman caught in adultery and the other one doesn't, uh, you would be hard to choose, right? Um, you'd have to pick a 50-50 shot as to which one you think is accurate. But if you have 100 manuscripts of John, even though you may find uh, more variations, uh, you'll be able to tell the number and the age and geographical diversity of the manuscripts um, and whether the story was there or not. So this is what the science of textual criticism has done with hundreds, um, thousands of variations, not thousands of variations, but copies of the manuscripts. We're able to look at them and understand clearly which ones um, are true and most accurate. So here's the way that F.F. Bruce, um, a researcher, put it. If, a great, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is remarkably small. So, um, so one of the things that we also need to look at is what does the text say? Is it different than the rest of the Gospels, the rest of Scripture? Is it the same? And one of the things that uh, we're going to find is that uh, there's no doctrine uh, within um, this passage um, in John chapter 8, 1 through 11, the woman caught in adultery, that um, changes um, any of the doctrine. Nothing's added, nothing's taken away. Um, and F.F. Uh, Bruce um, also um, wrote um, this idea that nothing has also changed in the last several generations in regards to that. In uh, 2006, um, Paul Wegner, he also affirmed Bruce's assessment and said that it is important to keep in perspective the fact that only a very small part of the text is in question, not the whole Gospel of John, not um, multiple chapters, not um, multiple books, um, just a very um, small portion. And of these, uh, most variants make little difference to the meaning of the passage. And then um, he closes his book um, by quoting uh, Frederick Kenyon. He says, it's a, it is reassuring at the end to find that the general result of all the discoveries and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity, the veritable word of God. So as I agree with most of the scholars that this um, indeed was not originally part of John's um, gospel, um, I um, can also... Um, say that I think, as many other scholars do, that this event actually happened. Um, it's true, um, although it's, its placement and who wrote it um, might not um, be accurate. Um, and I think it, with this passage, too, we see that um, who doesn't love um, this passage, right? to see God's grace, to see his compassion um, in this moment. Um, but that doesn't necessarily give it the authority of Scripture just because we like it, just because we think it's true. Um, this passage may not reach the levels of God-inspired Scripture. I just want to see some nods if we see, like, the difference. <laughs> 
So we think this event is true and happened. However, it might not be scripture, might not be God-inspired, authoritative scripture. Are you with me? All right. Um, So uh, what do we do with it? So today, um, I want to look at this passage um, and uh, make um, a couple assumptions. One, um, that it's true. Because uh, it does not um, contradict any other portion of Scripture, um, the historical study of this passage and its cultures and all of the things that happen in it um, seem to line up and match, and also um, that we can learn something from it today, um, even on Mother's Day. So before we dive in, um, would you pray with me this morning? God, we, uh, we're grateful for today, and we acknowledge today that uh, we are simple people. God, that we um, are sinners. God, that uh, we oftentimes miss um, your grace and compassion. God, if we're honest, um, if I'm honest, that oftentimes I am judgmental and wrestle with things like arrogance. God, that um, grace and compassion um, don't flow from me quite possibly from us, um, in ways um, that you would see fit. And God, today, as as we look at this passage, we take um, comfort in the fact that uh, you know um, who wrote it. You know when it was written. God, you know um, for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, without studying um, what um, its purpose is and what we should do with it. And God, I just pray today that you would have your way with us that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, God, that we would um, come away knowing uh, you better, that we would come away worshiping you, and God, that uh, even if only a little, God, that you would transform us today. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so turn with me to John. Uh, It'll be either, um, depending on your version, uh, chapter 7, verse 53, or chapter Eight, uh, verse 1. I'd like to read the passage and then kind of come back and walk through it. And it says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In verse 8, and once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. So here we have um, a woman that's clearly um, caught in adultery, and as we read it, we actually understand that it says that she was caught in the act of adultery. 
as you can begin to imagine uh, what that must have been like for her. I'm not that there was just some accusation, but what they're saying is that she was caught actually in the act of committing adultery. And uh, we also see that uh, here she shows up uh, with these Pharisees and these scribes, and um, she is alone with them, and they bring her before Jesus as he is there teaching the crowds. And we know that as we look at um, some verses in the Old Testament, um, three things, that um, both um, the woman and the man caught in adultery must both um, be put to death, both. Leviticus 10 I'm sorry, Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death, both of them. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22 says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. And so you shall purge the evil from Israel. But where's the guy? He's not there. They did not bring him. And that begins to come up all kinds of um, hypotheses as to what exactly happened. Is it possible that one of these uh, Pharisees or scribes was the guy? Is it possible that it was a, it was a setup to begin with um, to trap um, this woman? I mean, those things we, we don't know. But we do know um, that both of them, according to the law of which they were quoting and trying to trap and trick Jesus, Um, Both the man and the woman were supposed to be there, and here we have only the woman. We also know um, from Deuteronomy 17 that it says there must be at least two or three witnesses, and um, I'm sorry, two or three witnesses of the act, and um, they must be the ones to cast the first stone. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, it says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So those that were making um, the accusations, those that actually saw the act committed, they were the ones who were supposed to throw the first stone to stone her to death. And we won't go into um, a lot of detail, but... um, Stoning to death, it it was a pretty gruesome ordeal. Uh, It was capital punishment um, in that day and in centuries before where they would take up stones and they would pummel someone with those stones until they died. And here, as God is clear in the Old Testament, um, the capital punishment, uh, according to the law, was not to happen unless there were at least two or three people who actually witnessed it. Not just a trial, not just a, a trial by your peers uh, or the jury of your peers, but two or three actually witnesses that did it. And those were the ones um, who had to take up the stone. So if you can imagine, um, that ups the ante, right? So if you're going to make an accusation of something that happened, you are the one who has to throw the first stone. You're going to want to make that accusation um, incredibly carefully. As we move on to... Um, The first part of verse 6, it says that uh, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So clearly in Scripture, they said it to test him, and uh, this has become a pattern of Jesus' ministry. As we see the Pharisees um, over and over again trying to trap Jesus in some sort of Old Testament law, um, you know, trivia game, 
and get him to do things or say things that are against the law of Moses um, or uh, would be against um, their culture or tradition of the time. Um, in verse 3, uh, we see that um, it was a group of scribes and Pharisees. Um, the scribes in those days, which by the way is not a word that John typically uses, which goes back to this is likely not written by him, um, they were known um, to be experts in the law. These were the guys that were, they would come to trials for um, Jewish people, and they were the ones that would determine if a law was broken or not. Um, that's why those scribes would have been there in that moment, so they could be the experts and trip or trap Jesus um, here. As verse 6 goes on, it says, Jesus has been, he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So what and why did Jesus write on the ground? It's kind of the question, right? I think it's a thing that we all want to know. And there have been many people who have um, come up with some um, ideas of that over time. Some have said uh, that um, Jesus needed to gain a little bit more time so we could think about what his response was going to be. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't think Jesus really needed that. Um, although um, I have been known um, to do that, um, Amy, what do I always say? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. If, if you're ever stumped by a, something somebody asked you, just say, hey, that's a great question. All the while, you know, you've got another gear in the back of your brain thinking about what, what in the world am I going to answer uh, to this. So not always if I say to you that's a great question. It, it might indeed be a Great question. Um, but some have said that he was doing it to gain more time, but I, I don't think that's likely. Some said he was modeling uh, Jeremiah 17, 13, uh, where he would write the names and the sins of Pharisees in front of him. Um, but um, that's also um, not very likely. Although, um, that would be incredibly interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> to be there. I mean, remember, there's a crowd of people um, that are there as Jesus is teaching them, they bring this woman in front of the crowd and, and, and there they, they have this um, slight back and forth and, and Jesus is riding on the ground. Um, so I don't know that it's likely that he would have been writing their sins that wouldn't um, fit the pattern of, of Jesus, um, his ministry. Um, a better answer, one that's probably more consistent with the rest of scripture in the life of Jesus, um, is that he just refused to play um, their game and enter into an argument with them. Uh, verse 7 um, backs this up. Um, as he bent down, it says, they continued to ask him. They didn't let it go. So as Jesus was um, bent over um, writing, whatever it is that he was writing, um, they continued to ask him. Um, clearly, I'm trying to make a scene of all that was going on and likely hoping to discredit Jesus um, in front of the crowd that gathered to hear him teach. And what was Jesus' response? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Um, as I have thought about um, this passage, and, and I don't know about you, I can oftentimes um, find in my life, if I'm honest, um, a pattern of finding it easy to be judgmental. <laughs> Does anybody else wrestle with this? Um, to think of somehow that um, I, I might be better than, I might know more than um, someone else. And um, 
I'm oftentimes reminded of this passage and these words of let him who is without sin cast the first stone. In verse 9, the, the passage goes on. It says, but when they heard it, um, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. So why did they leave? Um, possibly because of what Jesus wrote, um, especially if he was <laughs> there writing their sins. I mean, who wants to sit there for that? Um, in fact, if anyone liked to do it today, you know, you can give me a list and we can just write them here. Um, I'm not volunteering, but if you'd like to, we can try it. Uh, possibly uh, because they knew that they were false witnesses um, and they uh, knew that their fate because of what God had already said in Deuteronomy chapter 19 where it says, um, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with the offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. In verse 16 of Deuteronomy 19, it says this, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. And the judges, in verse 18, it says, shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So the possibility that um, what, ha- what they're saying happened, that they caught this woman in the act of adultery, it's possible that they actually didn't. That they actually made it up. And if they did, and if that's the reason um, that they began to leave, uh, we can see... Um, Clearly, they would be the ones, in this case, that should be stoned, not actually the woman. Um, At verse 9, it clearly says, uh, not those things, but it says, when they heard it. In verse 9, heard what? Um, They heard Jesus' words um, from verse 7. When Jesus said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. These are the words that they heard. And this is the reason, according to the passage, that they went away one by one, um, the older ones first. There's no record of Jesus saying anything else here. And I love that about Jesus. I wish there are times that um, I was um, just as witty as him, although clearly that is not the case. Uh, And um, there's no record of debate or argument, no record of Jesus reciting the law. There's no trial. There's no hearing. Um, but upon Jesus' words, um, they left. And this would have been happening in front of a crowd that's mentioned in verse 2. Verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Imagine being this woman in this moment where Jesus um, stood, stands up after he's writing, whatever it is that he's writing, and there's a crowd of people that are all around. And Jesus says, well, where, where are they? And no one has condemned her, and Jesus um, says, neither do I condemn you. What, what a powerful um, moment uh, where likely um, 
she thought or believed that um, her life was over. Um, her shame, her guilt uh, was there on display for all people to see. She would have been the talk of the town. And um, that would have forever um, probably been um, her identity in their culture. And Jesus says, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. I think we're reminded of John earlier in chapter 3 and verse 17, where it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus, he remains true um, to his word, that he did not come into the world to condemn it, um, but that the world might be saved through him. So whose perspective do you see through this morning? Do you see it through the woman's eyes, whose identity was um, in her shame, and what others thought about her? She was an outcast of society, but also um, the one that was being used um, by the religious um, elites of that day. Is your identity in what you do? Is it in your career? Is it in your status? What group you belong to? Um, how good uh, or how bad you are at something? For me, um, although I, I think as I thought about this week, what are the things that um, make up or have made up my identity over the years um, as, a, um, as a young person, uh, which I'm told um, by some of our students that um, I'm not I'm so young anymore. Thanks. <laughs> In fact, they, they say I'm really old, to which some of you are like, no, you're young, right? Right? <laughs> um, but as a young person, um, much, I think, of my identity um, happened to be in how good that I was at um, particular games, um, especially um, athletically. Um, you know, I was the kid um, in the backyard wiffle ball um, club that um, was always one of the first ones um, to be picked um, because I knew how to throw the, the sweet curveballs or the screwballs with the wiffle balls, you know, the ones you know, with the lines just on the one side of the ball. Um, I was the one that happened to have the bat that was loaded with um, fishing weights and lead and taped up with electrical tape, and they wanted me on their team. Um, in middle school, um, as a middle school is often um, an interesting place, um, I was oftentimes picked uh, one of the first ones for a dodgeball because um, I could pelt the kids on the other side of the gym, um, especially those that had no athletic ability at all. Um, they were fun. Um, to pick off in those days. In high school, um, I was um, oftentimes known um, as an athlete, and um, oftentimes, whether it was um, for a team uh, or for backyard um, pickup games, um, I was oftentimes uh, one of the first ones um, picked. And, you know, as there would be all of these things um, talked about um, in years to come about um, no one wants to be picked last. And, you know, my attitude was kind of like, well, we'll just get better at the game. And um, until uh, it was just several years ago, um, I thought, you know, I, I want to get in shape a little bit more. So I'm going to I'm going to play some some pickup um, basketball with some guys in the community at, at a local church. And so I went um, to play and I knew I was out of shape, but um, I was still an athlete. Right. And um, so we, I don't know any of the guys other than one, and uh, he wasn't picking. Um, so we were out there in the middle of the court, and 
there's some, I don't know, there's probably 20 of us or so, you only need 10 to play a game. And so they, they start picking. And I'm like, okay, that guy, you know, he's six foot eight. That makes total sense. Um, this guy, he hasn't missed a shot during all of the uh, warm-ups. That, that makes total sense. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get picked here soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, they, they picked their, their five each, and I was like, oh, oh, okay. Well, then they had to pick subs. I'm like, well, all right, I'll just be a sub. That'd be great because I'm out of shape anyway. I don't have to run the whole time. I can just come in, be the hero, and go back on the bench. <laughs> well, I, I didn't get picked to be a sub. <laughs> So I'm standing there um, in this moment, and at least for that moment in time, my identity was in my athleticism, and or what I thought was my athleticism. And so they they picked their five, they picked their subs. They said, "Okay, let's pick the third team." Oh, okay. At least I get to be the next team up to to come in. So they picked the third team. Ah, I didn't get picked. I'm like. Maybe they just don't know me. <laughs> they don't know my game. Um, and then they picked the subs for the third team, and I didn't get picked. And then everyone just kind of walked off of the court to get ready to play a game, and there I stood, like in the middle of the court with like two other guys. And I'm like, what, what, what just happened? And in that moment, you know, although it was, it was a sad moment for me, it was a wake-up call to what I think many people um, experience in, in all kinds of different avenues of, of life. But I realized in that moment um, my identity was in something that it really shouldn't be anyway. And um, it is difficult to, to experience that, but it's um, incredibly freeing when you begin to realize that my identity is not um, in what I can do or what I cannot do. My identity is not in how good or in how bad um, I am at something. My identity is not even in my shame or in my guilt, uh, much like the woman I would have been experiencing probably many of those things in that moment of who she was and who people thought she was. Maybe your perspective is that of the Pharisees this morning, um, who, uh, whose identity was in their arrogance, in lording their authority over others, making sure that others were put down um, so that they could be lifted up. Is your identity based on how bad other people are? <laughs> Do you find yourself comparing yourself to other people um, so that you, at the very minimum, can have someone that is at least one level worse than you are. For me and my family um, growing up, um, I thought this was normal, where um, someone, um, every night at the dinner table, uh, they would just get obliterated um, and drilled. They would be made fun of for all kinds of different things, whether true or untrue. And the dinner conversation for me growing up was always that. And uh, you, you never wanted to be that person, Right. So you would find a way to enter in the conversation, to, to move the conversation to where there was always somebody else that was going to get picked on um, more than you. Maybe you view other people um, in your family. Maybe it's other people at your workplace, um, and you think that your identity is um, good or at least okay simply because um, you're one step better than somebody else. Maybe your perspective is of the crowd, that you're just sitting there watching all of this, taking it all in. Uh, you're evaluating what's actually happening and trying to decide, I'm in this moment, who's right? 
um, who is this man called Jesus anyway? I just came to hear him teach. What is this even all about? Maybe you have at moments some of the perspective of Jesus where you're given the opportunity to either condemn or to extend grace. John Piper said this. He says, the point is that righteousness and justice should be founded on a gracious spirit. And if it's not, what you get is the heartlessness and hypocrisy of Pharisaism. Is that you this morning? Is that us? So friends, whatever perspective uh, we see things from this morning, we must realize that our identity isn't determined by what we've done, by who we are, what our career is, how good we are or aren't at something. Our identity can only be determined by the one who made us. It can only be determined for this woman in this moment by her creator, by our creator, Jesus himself. And here's what John said earlier as well in chapter one. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What if this became our identity this morning? That we are simply children of God, whether at work, at home, whether we wrestle with guilt or shame, arrogance, defeat, how good we are or aren't something. What if all of those things went away and each day our identity became more and more that we become children of God? To our moms this morning, I encourage you just to lay down the pressure of being um, the best mom, as there are many things for moms to compare themselves to, whether it is um, on Facebook or Instagram, whether it's in magazines or news articles. Um, there's always um, this comparison of this feeling of I'm not a good enough mom. What if it's not about that? What if we just chose as people, for you as moms, um, to simply live as a child of the king, in front of our family? What if that became our aim? Friends, I think for us to live as a child of the king um, in front of our coworkers, our neighbors, our classmates, our families, and our friends, and for those of us um, that have believed in his name and received him, as it talks about in that scripture in John, this is our call. This is who we are to be, a child of the king. And to those of us today that might not know Jesus at all. May you find yourself believing in Jesus Christ for salvation and bending uh, your knee to him on this Mother's Day. And may uh, we all, by the end of this day, um, be worshiping um, our King Jesus um, because he too gave us the right to become children of God. Let's pray. God, we are uh, grateful today for this story, whether it is um, intended to be um, authoritative scripture, whether it's intended to be a true story, whether it wasn't meant to be in there at all, God, we are reminded today of your grace and your compassion for here in this moment, as you spoke up for this woman and you extended um, grace to her. God, we're grateful that you did not come into this world to condemn it, but you came to save it. And God, that you have given us, for those who believe in you, the right to become children of the King. Help us today in whatever we face to remember that, that that would always be who we are and our identity. For it's in Christ's great and glorious name that we pray. Amen.